0: So what we have been doing is we've been looking at Ephesians and we've been going very slow. As you recall, um, my goal is not necessarily to preach through the whole New Testament in my lifetime. My goal is to exposit the Word of God and to see God's people love Him more and serve Him. And so we have been taking our time going through Ephesians. And just by way of reminder, so, if it's okay, if I can move this up a little, I feel like you guys are in a different place. Just by way of reminder, what we've been looking at in Ephesians is, if you recall, it divides nicely into two sections, chapters one to three, the high calling of the church, chapters four to six, the high conduct of the church. High calling, high conduct, or you could say um, doctrine and duty, doctrine and duty and duty. And where we've been giving our attention is in Ephesians 1, and we've been spending most of our time in verses 3 to 14, specifically in 3 to 6, as we looked at what are these spiritual blessings that we are to be praising and adoring our God for. And we noted that chapter 1, verse 3 to 14 teaches us this doctrine that is all throughout Scripture, which theologians call inseparable operations. Inseparable operations. And we recognize that within the Trinity, there are three persons. There is one God, we are monotheists, in three persons, eternally coexistent, eternally equal. However, they have somewhat different functions. Well, that may sound weird at first, you, if you're orthodox, little O, you would agree with me. Because the Spirit did not die on the cross for our sins. The Son did. The Son did not elect us before the foundation of the world. The Father did. And so we recognize that while these operations are distinct within the Trinity, they are inseparable. They are all working toward the same end. And in our section here, that is salvation. But just by way of reminder, as we move into this new section, verses seven to 12, and we look at the son's effectual redemption, the son's effectual redemption, and as we introduce this section, verses seven to 12, I just want by way of reminder, let's just, let's just take a brief, fast-paced, 30,000-foot view of what inseparable operations is and where we see it in other places of scripture. So if you want to note these down, you don't have to turn there. I'll just be reading rapidly. We see this in the creation of the universe, the creation of the universe. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 102.25, of old, you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands with reference to God. And of the father, scripture testifies in 1 Corinthians 8.6, yet for us, there is but one God, the father from whom are all all things, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. And that transitions nicely into the work of creation of the Son, to which scripture testifies in Hebrews 1, 2. And these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Of the spirit, scripture testifies. Genesis 1-2, when the earth was formless and void and darkness was, was over the surface of the deep, the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And Job 26-13 tells us, by his spirit, the heavens are made beautiful. Beautiful. And I don't think we see that anywhere better than here in the Pacific Northwest. And God has been abundantly gracious to us in that. Well, what about also the incarnation? The incarnation. Well, we see the father sends the son. The son condescends and the spirit creates and mends these two natures into one glorious person. And Let me give you some witnesses to that effect. John 8, 42, the father sends the son. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and have come from God for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, the eternally divine son, the word of God condescends in himself to take on human flesh. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his, what? Glory. His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Philippians 2, 6 and 7. Who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Although in your translations, it may say, although he existed, some of you, You know, this guy right here could go and he can look at it and find out that's actually a participle. That's not, it's not saying that he existed and then stopped existing as God, but he was continuously existing in the form of God. What is the form of God? The form is that outward reality that that reflects the inward nature. The form of God is glory, radiant splendor, Hebrews tells us. And he veiled that in human flesh he emptied himself, he made himself of no repute by taking on the form, same word, form, form of God, form of a slave, us, he took on our flesh without ever ceasing to be what he always was. That's important. That's important because in the Holy Spirit, mends these two natures into one glorious person. Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1, 20. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, Joseph, in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived, begotten in her is of the Holy Spirit. And The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Or what about in the death of Christ? In the death of Christ, of the Father, Scripture testifies, Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that each one who is believing in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And of the Son, Scripture testifies with regard to the death of Christ. John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. So who who is who is putting this son to death? The Father? The Son? The Jews, the Romans, the spirit. Luke 23, 46, and Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. John 19, 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up. His Spirit. Galatians 2:20. Paul says, "I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and who gave Himself for me." Well, surely the Spirit didn't have anything to do with this, did He? On the contrary operations of the Trinity are inseparable. Inseparable. Hebrews nine thirteen to fourteen of the Spirit. For if blood and goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the f- of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then we have the resurrection of Christ. I remember some of us were, were out at the waterfront and we were talking to people, doing some evangelism. And there's a whole bunch of Jehovah Witnesses out that evening. And it's interesting how little time they have for you when they're out about on their time, but how much time they have for you when they show up at your door, but that's, that's another story. Nevertheless, we were talking with this mother and this daughter, and we were, we were arguing for the divinity of Christ. And at one point the daughter finally piped up and she said, who raised Jesus from the dead? I said, that's a good question. And I think it depends on which scripture verse you look at because the scripture says the father raised him from the dead, the spirit raised him from the dead and he raised himself from the dead. You know what she said? That's not logical. You can't raise, if you're dead, you can't raise yourself from the dead. That's not logical. I said, okay, well, if I show you this in the scripture, how will that change your thinking? And she was kind of dumbstruck for a moment. I said, will you change your position if I can show you clearly from the scripture that Jesus that testified that he would raise himself from the dead there's like a kind of show. Sure, there was no like yes the resurrection of christ acts 2:24 says god raised him up again putting it into the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power of the father scripture testifies and this is just this is not exhaustive by any means this is just a brief survey Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him, Jesus Christ, from the dead. And of the Son, the scripture testifies. John ten seventeen and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Again, this commandment, commandment I have received from my father. John 2, 19 to 21, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. But what? But he was speaking of the temple, his body. After I walked through that with the mother and the daughter, they had to get going because they had things to do and they had no more time. But of the spirit also, the scripture testifies in Romans 8, 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead also will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And the resurrection of believers of the most beautiful passages, near and dear to my heart, Romans 6. Romans 6, 4-5, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism, through immersion, into death. It's not water baptism here. It's union with Christ. So that as Christ was raised from the dead... Through the glory of the Father, glory there referencing the outworking, the manifestation of his power, his intrinsic omnipotence, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And reading through that makes me want to switch over to Romans 6 and go back there and exposit these beautiful truths. But as we continue the resurrection of believers with regard to the inseparable operations of the Trinity, John five twenty one, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he wishes. John eleven twenty five, Martha and Lazarus, you know this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Romans 8 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, we read this one before, so you see that resurrection again. The indwelling presence. Turn with me briefly to John 14. Is it just the spirit that dwells within us? Or is it just the son and the spirit that dwells within us? John 14 16. Our Lord says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, another paraclete, another comforter. It's the same thing we see in First John. We have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus. But here, this isn't speaking of Christ, this is speaking of the Spirit. And I just find it, not to sound cliche, but comforting that he says, I will give you another comforter. Because the Holy Spirit has many functions that he performs, does he not? Our Lord could have said, I will give you another teacher. But he didn't say that, did he? He said, comforter. He said, comforter. He will give you another helper, another paraclete, one that comes alongside to bear your burdens with you, to carry you. And he continues, it's not temporary, that he... Holy Spirit, who is a person, may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and disclose myself to him. It said this time, Judas, not Iscariot said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, now listen to this. We've already seen the indwelling of the son, the indwelling of the spirit. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him. We, and make our abode with him. Colossians 127, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 1st Corinthians 6:19 We have been bought with a price our body is a temple of the holy spirit we are to glorify god with our body because we are not our own and as we i think that's a great place to transition speaking of being bought with a price because what we're looking at is this introduction of this second inseparable operation of the trinity namely that which the son does and here we see in Ephesians 1 we had our opening in verses one to two and then verses three to 14 is this, this doxological adoration of God for all of his spiritual blessings that he's poured out upon his people. In Verse three of Ephesians one, if you turn there with me, we'll be spending the bulk of our time here. Blessed is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with most spiritual blessings. Is that what it says? With stingy spiritual blessings. Is that what it says? No. It says, all, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And these are in Christ. One of the main themes in this book is our union in Christ, especially in 3 to 14. If you want a fun exercise and you have not yet done it, take a highlighter of a different color than you normally use. Read through Ephesians and highlight box, triangle, whatever it is that you do, everywhere it says in Christ, in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in him, in whom. And look at those surrounding verses. The fundamental core doctrine to the Christian life is our union with Christ. It's one of the beauties of Romans 6. Do you know that if you are in Christ, you are no longer a sinner by nature? If you are in Christ, you are no longer a sinner by nature. Romans 6 tells us that you have been united with him in death, burial, and resurrection. What is the wages of sin? Death. So if you have been united with him in death, the wages have been paid. You have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live. Now our flesh has not yet died. So we still carry around this body of death, but we only have one nature. We are not like Christ. We do not have two natures. We are not slaves to sin, to obey its lusts. Because of this beautiful work, And then from 4 to 14 of Ephesians 1, we see the establishment of spiritual blessings. And we've been looking at, for the most part, the Father's salvific work in verses 4 to 6. We see that just as he chose us, remember that's with interest to himself, the Father chose us for himself. And where did he do that? In Christ. When did he do that? Before the foundation of the world. Why did he do that? so that we would be holy and blameless before him and you know this is a special word for before it means like i'm before you right now in your presence that's the goal and he did all of this in love having predestined us to adoption as sons you remember it's sons not sons and daughters When you start to try and take that route and you say sons and daughters, all of a sudden you've created two classes of Christians. Because in this context, sonship was the highest level that you could have. Adopted as a son, then you have all the rights and privileges of the family. And if you were to put in here sons and daughters, now you've got two different levels of Christians. That's not what Paul's saying. That's not what the spirit of God is saying. He's saying, it doesn't matter if you're slave or free, male or female, Greek or Jew, it, it doesn't matter. You have the air of sonship. You have been adopted to this highest level. And Hebrews 12 tells us that it is the church of the firstborns, plural, all of us, firstborns, those who receive the inheritance. He has predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, Why would he do all that? Is it because there was something good in us? Is it because we were kind of like a diamond in the rough and we just need to be polished up a little bit? No, quite the opposite, actually. He did it because of the good pleasure of his will. And he did it so that we would be to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graced us with in the one who is beloved. In the one who is beloved. God does not reach out to some third party to obtain your salvation. Your salvation is planned, is bought, and is sealed within the Godhead. And there is no salvation outside of this one true God. No matter how sincere one might be There is no hope. The hope of glory is only found in Jesus Christ and in this Christ that scripture testifies of. As we look at verse seven, what my intention here is, is to walk through phrase by phrase and to just give us an introduction and an overview of what we'll be looking at in the weeks and months to come from this section. So far as going through this, God's been gracious, and I've been able to count 19 different doctrines that are either explicit and a couple that are implicit within this section of Scripture. And it's my hope and prayer that while not being exhaustive, we can turn over each one of those rocks so that we can better understand what these blessings are that God has given us. That we would not just give a cursory glance. To these things and move on so that we could have our bible in a year plan done but that we would dig deep and that we would apply these things to our life and to our hearts so that we would live for his glory and our christian lives are just like trees our worship of god is just like trees if there is no root if it doesn't go deep into the soil it will not grow high your worship of god will only go as high as your doctrine as your understanding of God goes deep, you want closer communion and fellowship with your God, well, then we have to dig deep. We have to dig deep. What is eternal life, Jesus says in John 17? That they may know you, the one true God. That's eternal life. Knowing God. And all of these blessings are all wrapped up in one glorious person, the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice verse 7 of Ephesians 1 begins with, in Him. In Him, literally, in whom. Verse 13 begins with, in whom. Near the end of 13, it also says once again, in whom? You see in verse nine, it says in him at the end of the verse, verse 10, in Christ, summing up of all things in Christ, things heaven, things in the earth, in him. Verse 12, the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Let's read through seven to 12, and then let's look phrase by phrase, at what's being communicated to us so that we might praise our God. In whom, verse seven, referring back to the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens, things on the earth, in him. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. just feel enraptured up into heaven, reading these beautiful words that are so orderly and tightly knit. I can just picture Paul writing this and being enraptured up into heaven, caught up into heaven, maybe even singing these things because of their beauty. Well, let's look at some of these. We'll notice in this first part, I've entitled 7A. I have 7A, B, C, D, E, just in verse seven. There's so much going on here. And it starts with these first two words in whom, or your translation may say in him. This is referring back to the beloved. This is the one who purchased our adoption. This is the one who made it effectual. Now remember, Christ did not go to the cross to make us lovable to the Father. That's not how this works. The Father chose us before time because he chose according to his good pleasure to set his love upon us. And because the Father loves us, Christ went to the cross and Christ went to the cross for a specific group of people. Christ went to the cross for an effectual atonement, an effectual redemption. He didn't go to save nobody. He went to save somebody. He didn't go to make people save a bull. He went to accomplish salvation once and for all. And he is the beloved and he is the purchaser of our adoption. And indeed he came for this very reason. Matthew 20, 28, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for the many. And we see in 7b, where we have redemption, the procurement of redemption. 7b, the procurement of redemption. Have you you thought about that? We have. That's present, that's right now. Did you know that if you're in Christ, You have redemption. That is something you have. It's something you don't deserve. None of us do. Nevertheless, you have it. We also see the price of redemption. The price of redemption says through his blood, through his blood, how many of you guys have heard of uh, a man named Todd White? He is a false teacher. He is um, growing in fame. He's got long dreadlocks, wears muscle shirts now. He used to do those healing tricks where he would show people that one leg was shorter than the other. By moving the shoes, he would length pray and lengthen their leg and fix their back pain and all these things. And he's good friends with uh, Kenneth Copeland, Francis Chan, um, Benny Hinn, and others along that same vein. He has this statement, and he says, the cross is actually a revealing of my value. The cross is a revealing of my value. You wouldn't go to, you know, a used car lot and buy some old broken down used car and buy it for like $40,000. I'm paraphrasing this point but he actually said the cross quote is a revealing of your value. And he uses an illustration like buying something. You wouldn't pay 40 grand for a 1982 Toyota Celica with 250,000 miles on it. And so how much must we be worth for God to send his son? What do you think about that? Is that what the Bible says? Now, I agree that we are valuable. But I think that we are valuable first and foremost because we're created in God's image. But even more so, those of us that have been partakers of the new covenant, because Christ made us valuable. Because of Christ's work, now we have that value. And we needed that because we were sinners. We're, we're owed nothing other than hell and damnation. Because we have sinned. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Have you thought about that? It's not just the bad things that we do. It's also the good things we leave undone. And it's also the horizontal societal good things that we do for the wrong reason. Anything not done to the glory of God in faith is sin. Sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness of sin. Peter says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious, precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You could argue Christ died to make us valuable, to bring us in him, but not because we have this intrinsic value that he had to spend that much to pay. And I think that's also an understanding of what redemption is. We recognize redemption is a purchase, right? It's used in the slave market and we'll go into this more in the weeks to come. It's used in the slave market when you go to buy a slave, what is the cost of this slave? How much do you have to pay to own this slave? And then you take it one step further, and rather than owning this slave with that price, you pay it so that he can have his freedom, so that she can have her freedom. That's what redemption is. That's what this word is. And the people there would have understand. You're, you are in a slave market of sin. And he's coming. And he's making this payment to free his people. Not because they're worthy. Not because they have this exceedingly great value. But because of, as we'll see, his grace. His grace. We also see here in verse seven, the amnesty in redemption the amnesty in redemption. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. There's a couple different words for forgiveness in the Bible. There's the one where there's the covering. If I were to uh, take my coat off and lay it over my materials here, you wouldn't see them. You would just see the covering. But you would know it was under there but it would be covered. It's done. You don't dig it back up. And then there's also that taking away. As far as the east is from the west, so you have removed our sins from us. There is amnesty because we were rebels. And through no work of our own, our great and gracious God has pardoned us. More than that, he has adopted us as sons. He has brought us into the family house. He has given us the family name. He has given us a seat at his table. He has made us ambassadors for his son. Heralds of the gospel. In verse seven, we also see, as we'll look at later, the riches of redemption, the riches of redemption. According to, that's a key word to note, according to the riches of his grace. God did this in accordance with his riches. Let me help us understand that. If O.J. Simpson came to you and said, I want to bless you financially in accordance with my riches, how much money do you think that would be? Well, oh, I may not be Uh, on the cutting edge of news. But last I saw, he was getting arrested for stealing things because he didn't have very much money at all. So if OJ Simpson is going to bless you financially in accordance with his riches, how much is that going to be? Now, conversely, let's say Bill Gates. Bill Gates says, I'm going to bless you in accordance with my riches. How much do you think that would be? Quite a lot. But this is the eternal God. And He has blessed us with things that are not perishable, with things that are everlasting in Christ according to His riches. How much more rich do you think God is in things that actually matter than any dozen people throughout history added together? In verse 8, what we'll look at is the extravagance of redemptive grace. The extravagance of redemptive grace. It says here, which he lavished on us. This is that word to superabound, cause to superabound. Lavish is, is a good translation of that idea. He has caused all of this extravagant redemptive grace, effectual grace, to fall upon us. It makes us think, and he repeats these themes all throughout the book, which is why it's so important we have a good foundation in this first chapter. Verse four of chapter two, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And then he puts in there, by grace, by grace you have been saved. We also see this in Romans 5. Romans 5. Romans 5 verse 20, I'll read it. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, what? Grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, we also have here in verse eight, the mind of redemptive grace. The mind of redemptive grace. He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. This is the wisdom, the insight, the discernment, the understanding that He gives to us. He gives us the mind of Christ. Because Christ is worthy, as we see in Revelation 5 12, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom. And might and honor and glory and blessing. Now, here is one of the extremely odd and doesn't actually seem right, but beautiful truths of Christianity. Because Christ has received these things, we too have received them by virtue of our union with Christ, being that we are in Him. That's not fair. That's grace. We see in Colossians 2.3 that in whom, which is Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In verse 9, we see the revelation of redemption. The revelation of redemption. He made known to us. He made known to us. God did not have to make these things known to us, but he has made them known to us. He has revealed them to us. And we see this also, Ephesians 3.3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. Speaking of the stewardship and the administration of grace that Paul was given. And in nine, we also see the mystery revealed he made known to us the mystery of his will from secret to revealed. Remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. What's Deuteronomy 29, 29? Secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed to us, to our children, forever that we may do them. We may Do them. So these things, now remember, just we'll go into it more later, but just by way of review, touch us up when we get there. We look at God's will and we see God's revealed will and God's secret will. God's secret will is exhaustive. It's single, it's comprehensive, it's effectual. We've gone through all of those things before. And so when God ordains something, we don't know what his secret will is, but we see it working out in what theologians call what? Providence, we see it looking out. So how do we know if God has ordained something to happen? We either one see it in his revealed word or we look back in history and we see what did happen. We see how has God been working history? And so what Paul is saying here is this mystery revealed, this is something that was hidden, this was the secret will of God, but because of his grace, he has made us know it. He has opened it up to us that we might know this. And then he goes on, the condition. Why does he do this? What's the condition of this revelation? Did we do something good? Or were we worth it? No. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention or his good pleasure. This is a good and a gracious God that we serve. Hang with me. We are going to be technical for a little while longer. But as we begin to get in, to this in the weeks to come, it's going to be, I think, majestic because this is such beautiful, deep, rich truth. We see God working in his good pleasure all throughout the scripture. Psalm 115, verse three, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Isaiah 46, nine and 10 He says, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish most of my good pleasure. All my good pleasure. God works according to his pleasure and because he's gracious for our greatest good, our greatest good. And then we also see the premeditated union, which he purposed in Christ. We see this in 1 John, or in John 1, 4. Life is in him. Light is in him. Life is found in Christ. We see this in 2 Timothy 1, 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God this is probably a good thing for us to dwell on. You know that historically and biblically, the Christian life is a life of suffering. Are we prepared for that? Because the way times are going, it's closer now than it's ever been, at least for, for people in this country. Are you ready to suffer For Christ, Are you ready to count it joy? And maybe some of you have already been doing that through other things that you have going on in your life. But what a blessing it is that we have, that we can take part in suffering just as our Savior suffered for us that we might also suffer. And he continues, suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted in Christ Jesus to us from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and mortality to light through the gospel, through the gospel. And then we, we come to verse 10. And as we approach verse 10, what we will see is the stewardship of redemption, the stewardship of redemption. It, your Bible might say administration, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ. The stewardship of redemption, which is both now and future. And what we will see, whether from earth or from heaven, is what was prophesied in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We will see that. And this is what he's talking about here. This is that administration, that stewardship, working towards that culminating of the messianic time. We see it now in the church and we'll see it future. Because the redemption is now, and the redemption has a specific day, as Ephesians 4:30 tells us: "Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Do you hear that? The day of redemption. Well, we also have the supremacy of the Redeemer. We see that in verse 10. The summing up of all things in Christ—he is supreme all things are coming to him. They will be for him. All people will bow the knee. Everyone who has ever walked this earth will bow their knee and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there's gonna be two camps doing it. There's gonna be the sheep and there's gonna be the goats. But everybody will be on their knee. Everybody will be saying, Christ Jesus is Lord. You'll either be doing it as a humble worshiper are a grumbling enemy. We also see in Hebrews 1 the supremacy of this Redeemer. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed what? Heir of all things. Heir of all things. We also see the extent of His supremacy here in this verse. Things in heaven, in the heavens, and things on earth, in him. What's left? If you take the things in the heavens and the things on the earth, what's left? Nothing's left. This is the extent of his supremacy. Hebrews 2.8, you have put all things in subjection under his feet for in subjecting all things to him, left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And in Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now we recognize there is a, an already and a not yet aspect to that. But as far as we're concerned for our personal life, Is this verse true for you? I'm not asking, do you think that this verse is true? We know that this is true. I'm asking, do you have Christ as your first place in everything? When you're setting out to do whatever you're going to do throughout the day, go stay with a friend, go to the store, watch a movie, whatever it is that you're going to do, is Christ first place in that? Are you living out This administration, are you showing off Christ in you, the hope of glory by giving him what he already owns, what's rightfully his first place in everything because he has redeemed us from death. He has redeemed us from hell. Is it too big a thing to give him first place in everything? You realize that this concept of in Christ that we'll be looking at more in depth this concept of in Christ isn't compartmentalized. You are in Christ or you are in Adam. There is no middle ground and there's no jumping back and forth. You are in Adam until you are saved and then you are in Christ and then that's it. You stay in Christ. Every aspect of our life, it's the the thread that weaves through all of our life. Just as Hebrews said, very similar, there's no creature hidden from his sight. There should be no aspect of our life where that thread of the supremacy of Christ does not run through it. As we see, he is the supreme redeemer and the extent of his supremacy is everything. Everything. And also, as we continue to look at this, we see the inheritance We see the inheritance of the Redeemer. This is going to be a fun word when we get into. Verse 11, also we have obtained an inheritance. We've been made a heritage. We've been made an inheritance. This comes from casting lots. We we are the Lord's lot. We are his inheritance, the inheritance of the Redeemer. A great place to see this is Titus two fourteen. You can note it down. I'll read it. Our great God and savior who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Are you zealous for good deeds? Knowing that you've been bought, that you are a people for his possession. You don't have to prove anything to me. I mean, who am I? I'm nobody. But there's nothing that's hidden from God. And it's not saying, do you do the things you don't want to do? That's not the Christian life. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is that you have been regenerated according to this inseparable operation of the Trinity that that we've briefly been looking at. This is the Christian life. You've been regenerated with your affections, with your desires. Everything's been made new. Now there's some of it that by God's grace, he's left in us to work through so that we would rely on him, so that we would lean in him, so that we would trust on him. But the Christian life is not, I don't get to do what I want to do. And I have to do the things I don't want. If that is Christianity to you, you need to repent of your sins. You need to trust in Christ alone for salvation. You need to be saved. You need to be saved. I know a lot of us have been taught a lot of bad things about holiness throughout the years, especially in this country. But that is not Christianity. Christianity is a change in affections, a change in desires, a change in love. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then to love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because that's what Christ did, and he did that Perfectly. Now, our justification is not dependent upon our works. Praise God. But our works should show fruit of what's happened to us. And that means new affections and ever-growing new affections and desires. It should be our delight to serve and to submit to our great God. We are his inheritance. And also, We have a few more here. In verse 11, we have been predestined according to his purpose. This is the comprehensive immutability of redemption. Why does God know the future? It's not necessarily because he's all-knowing. More predominantly, it's because he decreed it. From the beginning, he decreed it. He knew what he was going to do. Just like if you were going to build a house, if you were the architect, you wouldn't walk over and go, why is, why is this window here? Where did that come from? You no, know, because you wrote it down, because you decreed it, this is how it's going to happen. There's you no know, looking down the corridors of time with God. And what we see here is everything that he predetermines comes to pass. He even as we've seen the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord's Proverbs 16:33 we see that he even ordains the wicked for the day of damnation we even see that God ordains sin and controls its effects while he himself being free from sin what's the worst crime ever committed throughout the history of humanity what's that crucifixion, why is that the worst crime ever committed? The wages of sin is death. Did Christ sin? No, he did not deserve to die. Why do bad things happen to good people? They don't. That only happened once, and he volunteered. We're not good people. That is by far the worst crime, because he was innocent, and he was murdered. And who killed him? Isaiah 53 tells us, it was Yahweh's good pleasure. It pleased Yahweh to crush him. Acts 2.23, this man, referring to Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death who killed jesus god the jews or the romans yes yes you see god even ordains sin and controls its effects but he's free from sin the intent behind just like genesis 50:20 we talked about in the q and a you meant This for evil, you weaved this for evil, but God meant this, God meant it, the evil, weaving it, same word, for good, to save many people alive. It's the same thing we have going on here. God does not ordain sin for the sinfulness of a thing, but for the good and the end of it. You understand that that sin, it was necessary for sin to be a part of this creation of our experience, so that God's magnificent glory might properly shine forth. Tell me how you understand God as a savior without sin. Tell me how you understand God's mercy without sin. Tell me how you understand the depths of God's love, God's grace. Go through the list of his attributes. And how do you understand that you don't? And what is eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so what is God doing? He's painting a black backdrop so that it shines even brighter and so that we can see and we can know categorically the beauty of God so that for all eternity, we can continue to fill in those categories as we worship and we learn who he is and we grow in communion, fellowship, and relationship with this triune God. There is a comprehensive immutability of redemption because God is sovereign over all things and he ordains everything for his glory and for the good of his people. And then we also see the solitary decree of redemption, the solitary decree of redemption. He works all things after the counsel of his will. Notice that he works all things. Does God work most things? Does God work some things? According to what does he do this? Does he look down the corridors of time and is he counseled by other people to see what they'll do so that he might know how to react? Does God receive counsel? No, he does not. It's the counsel, singular, of his will, singular. There is no other input. This is intra-Trinitarian. This is within the Trinity. All of this is planned. We see this beautifully, Romans 11:34, 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Expected response, no one, no one. And this is good news for us because if God has said it, he will fulfill it and he will not change and he will not go back on his promises. This is also bad news for some. If you're outside of Christ, you will not escape. You cannot expect that at some point in time, you're going to escape damnation. Maybe God will just forgive you. God never sweeps sin under the rug. Never. Even when, when he did it on his son, he displayed him what? Publicly. Publicly. And don't you think for a moment, if you're outside of Christ, that the one who would not even spare his own son for his holy justice would spare you. He won't. There is only one way to have forgiveness and to have peace with God, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is calling to all men everywhere, even now repent. Today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ and you will be saved. Come to Christ and you will receive clemency. Come to Christ and you will have fellowship and glory in this beautiful Christ. And as we see here in verse 12 of Ephesians 1, we'll be digging into what is this goal, the purpose of redemption. We see to the end that this is speaking of what is this ultimate purpose, what is this goal that's coming. And you'll notice that this rings similar to what we've studied before and what we'll study a couple more times to the praise of his glory. It's in here three times. The first time, slightly different. The purpose of redemption, we also see here is mature sons. just like Romans 8, 28 and 29. God works all things or causes all things to work together for good. Causes most things? No, all things together for good for those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's what he's working toward. Sonship. That we would be like Christ. That we would be like Christ. We also see the hope of redemption. The first ones to hope in Christ. Romans 15. Isaiah says in Romans 15:12, Paul quotes him. There shall come the root of Jesse and he will arise to rule over the Gentiles and in him, shall the Gentiles have hope? Anybody here Jewish? No? This is us. We're the Gentiles and now we have hope because of this great God, because of his beautiful son, because of the application of the spirit, taking Christ's work and applying it to us. That's why he's called the God of hope in verse 13. And he tells us these things so that we would have joy and peace in believing and so that we would abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, that we would be to the praise of his glory. We see the hope of redemption and the praise of redemption. I want to note this in Philippians 4. It says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and listen to this part, if anything worthy of praise, what are we going through in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14? This beautiful doxological adoration of the triune God. He says, blessed be, that we would be to the praise of his glory. Do you think anything that we've gone over today is worthy of praise? You see how we can go just really slowly and look at and say, okay, what is going on in each one of these phrases here? How is this pointing to the beauty and to the glory and to the majesty of our triune God? And how might we better understand him so that we can sing forth, speak forth, and live forth his praise? Anything worthy of praise. Think on these things. Dwell on these things. Meditate on these things. Our Christian life is a battle in the mind. We sin in our heart and in our mind before we ever do with our hands and our feet. Anyone who's walked the Christian life long enough, be one or two weeks, knows that this is true. We compromise privately before we ever compromise publicly. My prayer is that none of us would compromise, especially the difficulty during this time where we've been cooped up and we haven't been able to come together and experience the means of grace of fellowship. It's so easy for us to fall short God is gracious and he stands ready to forgive. He might discipline us, but consider that a blessing because he only disciplines his children and he loves us. But let us be to his praise and let us dwell on these things. The one who is worthy of praise. Father, we do thank you. We do praise you. We do give you glory for you are worthy of all glory that we can give. Work in our hearts, we pray, that we might behold you properly, that we would love you, that we would love your people, that we would love those around us. Lord, work in our hearts and give grace. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Strengthen our faith so that no matter what the world, the flesh, or the devil may say, We will glory in our Redeemer. We will give all glory to your Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.